welcome to episode three of series two of uh, some Essex lad and a Paralympian. Um, Sophie, welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, good to have you on um, in Canada. Um, how's yeah, that been? How's um, that been? It's been good. It's been unusual because I haven't wasn't really supposed to be here for this long. But then obviously coronavirus hit, and uh, I knew that if I went back to the UK. The Canadian border people wouldn't let me back in and this is you know where my coach is and where I train so I was like guess I'm here for the year then. So how long have you been in Canada for then? Um, I got here in March and on a visitor's visa you can stay here for six months so that has happened but luckily I was able to apply for an extension and the application I haven't got it back yet but basically as long as you kind of waiting for a reply you're allowed to stay so hopefully I'll be able to stay here until March 2021 they might kick me out earlier I don't know I'm just <laughs> and the aim to be in Canada is to, to train ahead of ahead of Tokyo coming up next yeah. year then yeah basically that's what I'm is, here for is Canada more special to train for athletics than it is in Britain is there any particular thing about it or no real difference um it's literally just my coach moved to Canada and I didn't really want a new coach and I went to I have graduated from university but during those three years of just being a different city to your coach and having to get texted your sessions was quite difficult um uh, and it's just it's not as good especially with like kind of being a, a disabled athlete with a running blade like it's quite hard to get people to tell you whether you're doing things correctly or whatever so you really need that coach to be there in person to see what's going on um so yeah I was just like well I've finished uni now so I might as well go to Canada then and how's the coaching setup for you is it kind of really good ahead of ahead of Tokyo coming up yeah I'm feeling pretty confident um like in 2019 I had a few issues with kind of like running blade setup so I didn't do as well as I'd hoped but now that's kind of sorted because I went to Iceland in February just before I came to Canada and um, I think we've really, really kind of worked on that. And hopefully I'll be able to get back to my kind of faster times when I compete. Oh, well, after you are kind of concentrating in the colder, the colder countries than Iceland, Canada. Yeah, for some reason um, that, yeah, that was not by design. But, you know, like running blade companies that there's not many of them. There's like Ossa and there's Ottobock and I use Ossa and they're amazing. And they just happen to be based in Iceland. I think you've had quite a history with kind of running blades and I'll, I'll get on to that in a bit um, because it kind of goes back to where you were kind of growing up, kind of growing up in London and Camden. Um, how was that? And how, did you always want to get into sports athletics? Um, yeah, well, I lived in London until I was 11 and then moved to Bath just for no real reason. My parents just fancied a change and they worked from home. So it didn't really like their jobs didn't really get affected. So I um yeah my like my whole like childhood primary school years were in Camden and I was like always sporty like I enjoy PE I never felt like I couldn't run faster than other kids um, and I wasn't an amputee for most of that time because I became an amputee when I was nine so it was very much like I was pretty fast I was I wouldn't win on sports day but I would never be last um but yeah I never really thought of myself as like I'm going to be an athlete it was very much I'm going to be an illustrator or um, an author or something like that I, I never kind of the Kingston University wasn't it yeah. illustration and uh, animation yeah yeah so I kept that passion alive as well um, but and yeah athletics kind of came later when I was um, yeah when I was a teenager was it quite an easy thing to kind of get into athletics when you kind of discovered that you know it was something that you were good at kind of down the line or yeah, it was. I mean, I the the way I got spotted was uh, there's a scheme at, that was run at Bath University called Playground to Podium. And that's the kind of one interesting thing that I think maybe if I had stayed living in London, I'd never have kind of got found because there's obviously so many more people there and there wasn't that scheme being run as far as I'm aware. Um, so I was lucky that I was in Bath at that point. Um, and so I did wheelchair basketball for a bit. I tried swimming for a bit. I did one session of sitting volleyball and was very bad at it. And then, yeah, eventually someone set, timed me running in my day leg without trainers. Um, and they, you know, I think I ran about like 16 seconds for 100 metres. And that's actually not that bad, um, even if you are in a running blade. So they kind of were like, put me in contact with my coach, who's still my coach now. And, uh, and it was basically a case of getting hold of a running blade at that point. And then, yeah, becoming better. 
Because the running blade, the initial running blade that you had was an NHS running blade, wasn't it? And then you um, it that. wasn't NHS. I don't think they were available on the NHS at that point. So it was um, I applied for money from a charity called Ready and then went through a private company. So I got a quote from the company and then got money from the charity to kind of give to them. And then, yeah, then I had a running blade. So I, I know now that blades you can get on the NHS for kids, which is really, really cool because I would have loved a blade as a child. Like it was a sh like I had to wait till I was fifteen to get one, um, but you know it, I'm don't I'm I don't have too much sort of bitterness about it because you know I'm where I am now so it's, it's fine. And the reason why you need running blades is of course because you had an amputation at such a young age. So could you explain about that? How did that come about? And you know you had a right leg shorter than a left leg. Was that the case yeah? So when I was I was born with um, congenital abnormalities in both of my feet, uh, the left side and the right side, but the right was a lot more severe. So throughout my kind of babyhood childhood, I'd wear a splint to try and straighten an incredibly curved foot. Um, and I'd uh, have kind of x-rays very regularly to kind of see what was going on because it's not like diagnosed, it's not got a name, it's just a random mutation basically. And then, um, yeah, and the right leg just did not grow as fast as the left leg, so then I needed a raised shoe. Um, and then by the time I was eight, um, it was so, it was just basically, it was starting to get incredibly painful to walk on. I was kind of about to have uh, a leg lengthening procedure uh, with an Elizaroff frame uh, and the surgeon kind of was doing his rounds and he kind of found out that I hadn't really been able to walk for quite quite a while. Um, I'd just been hopping around and I'd ended up on crutches and needing a wheelchair and stuff. So he said, actually, this leg lengthening thing, it takes years, it's very painful, probably won't work in this scenario if you're in this much pain now. Do you want to get it amputated instead? So I said, yes amputate it uh, and then yes, quite an was. easy decision at the time yeah it was I mean I was a logical child and I'm still a logical adult like it made no sense to try surgery that would almost certainly not work just to keep a foot like I I was already having to you know whenever I bought shoes I couldn't wear them straight away I'd have to send them off and get this kind of added chunk I'd have to get new splints all the time because I was growing so I was like well prosthetic foot isn't going to be that different uh, if anything it's going to be easier to deal with um so I just, and I just thought it sounded quite cool to get your foot chopped off so <laughs> yeah I'm happy with the decision that's a great way of thinking about it but it sounds cool to get your foot chopped off um, <laughs> yeah so what was the family and friends reaction at the time was everyone really supportive about it oh yeah there was there was no no one saying oh my goodness you must try and keep her foot it's like it made sense to everyone um, that, yeah, there was, there was, there was no weirdness or um, anything. And yeah, my friends obviously at the time were nine as well. So, you know, they just accept it straight away. And I missed quite a lot of school in year five, but that was fine. I did all right. I was about to say, what was, did you kind of notice, or, I mean, you pretty know, you would notice the difference, wouldn't you, you know, initially, but I mean, was it as big as you thought it would be in terms of kind of walking about and the change from, you know, having the amputation? I think, yeah, no, I found it very easy to adapt. That's one of the things that I am quite grateful for. I am good at adapting to things. So it's just putting a, a leg on, I could walk pretty much straight away. You know, they give you these bars to hold on to wrap, like while you're sort of trying them out, but it's like, I didn't need them. I could just walk. Uh, the main thing I found quite hard to coordinate was running in a day leg because it just, like obviously running with the foot that I had before it was amputated was that's what I'd always done. So that's what I was used to. So running with a prosthetic foot, it's not bouncy at all. It's kind of like running with a brick instead of a foot was quite difficult to get used to, but I think I probably worked out in a few months, but at the time it feels like ages. Cause I'd go to these sort of physio sessions and be like, Oh my God, why can't I run? This is so annoying. I just want to be able to run. Um, but yeah, it, I worked out in the end, obviously. So when you kind of got used to the running, um, when was the point? Um, was it before, university or was it um kind of at university that you thought I'm actually you know very very good at what I do um at that point I know you mentioned the 16 seconds um but was there yeah. before that which you thought maybe there's a chance here I don't know well so I did the sort of 16 seconds thing when I think I was about 14 or 15 and then um I was sort of put straight in contact with my coach and as soon as I got a blade my first competition um my 100 meter like personal best went down to 14.5 seconds so that's already like 
a, a big chunk. Um, and then I was like, wow. And that was just, you know, the first first time I'd ever competed. What what could I possibly do when I'm actually, you know, using blocks and uh, running a bit faster and with a bit more training behind me? And then like kind of, I don't know, four months later, I'd run like 13.9 seconds. And that was- Oh, a wow. Record. Yeah, that's a bit of a- so that was like a big jump. And then I was like, oh, I'm a British record holder. and I'm 15. That's quite cool. Um, and then, and then, yeah, it was kind of after the um, World Cup in 2012. That was my first international competition. My coach kind of said to me, yeah, you'll probably will get selected for the 2012 Paralympics, which was crazy because like, you know, I was doing my GCSEs. <laughs> but yeah, that was really exciting. I was about to say, what was the reaction at the time when you kind of had that? Because it was the Paralympic World Cup in 2012, wasn't it? Where you kind of made your international debut. And then from that, at that age, it must have been, it must have been crazy. I remember Ellie Simmons when, you know, she came onto the podcast and she mentioned about, you know, going out to Beijing and she was 13, 14. Yeah, she was so young, yeah. She had was it you know it must have been surreal for you at the time yeah it was it was shocking especially because as a primary school child um one of our school trips had been to go to Trafalgar Square to find out who'd got the bid for the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics and like I was there you know in that crowd of all my friends with little like little flags and I think I yeah that was so that would have been 2005 so I don't think I would have even had a prosthetic at that point um, so yeah, I was just hopping around and we were so excited and not, it did not even cross my mind that I would be there. Like I didn't even really know that running blades existed at that point. Like, so I had no idea that that was a possibility for me, like a, a new amputee child. So that's, yeah, that was really, really mad coincidence. I'm guessing you must've been watching the Olympics at London 2012. And I mean, to have your first Paralympic games at home games as well. I yeah. mean, that, 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 again, that must have been so surreal. You must have been thinking, you know, watching the Olympics and thinking, please, please, can we get to the Paralympic opening ceremony? I want to be in this and then we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's so like so much of it is a blur to me, but I, I do remember kind of stepping out and, you you know, like you're kind of warned, like you're going to get the biggest clap when they announce your name and that you're British. And it was amazing. Like, the, I guess part of it is like the design of the stadium quite quite like loud because some you know some kind of let the sound out and some kind of keep it in so um yeah this was this was pretty amazing and uh yeah nothing nothing like that so what was the village like did you meet loads of Paralympic athletes that you thought you might never potentially meet at that age as well um I I was well I was so because I was literally just turned I had my birthday in the holding camp beforehand like I turned 16 and then three days later my mum called me up to tell me what my GCSE results were so um, I was quite like shy so I didn't really kind of branch out much beyond kind of athletics um, but um, it was quite amazing just being in a space where everyone pretty much everyone has a disability because usually like at, at all of my sort of mainstream schools I was very much in the minority um, and this was just completely something like different and like kind of a, a fun like little utopia um, that yeah was really unusual and that only comes around every four years really so hopefully Tokyo 21 does happen. So what was the what was kind of the feeling that you had when you went into kind of the stadium then I mean you mentioned you mentioned the crowd I'm guessing the crowd was full at that point for, especially for the 100 and 200 meters event um, because you got PB in the 200 um but you didn't get podium um but uh, was that kind of more of a learning curve that you thought in reflection kind of after London yeah. 2012 that you thought well I didn't get a medal but it's been an amazing experience and I can genuinely take a lot from this to move on forwards I mean totally like I was not expecting to medal no one was expecting me to medal it was really about giving this like young child essentially um the experience of major international competition and also basically hoping that again to the finals if I got into the finals then that would show that I had sort of potential to um, get better and yeah I, I, I mean looking back I thought I was grown up but I was a little I was a baby and like because I was under 18 um, you know you had to have like chaperones everywhere so you you weren't even really like you were you couldn't just kind of wander off and do whatever you liked you had you were looked after by like an adult so um, it was yeah, I, I there was no way I was meddling, um, but it was yeah, it was an amazing experience and it, it got me addicted basically because it happened so quickly. Like I started training in 2011 
and the next year I was in the Paralympics and I was like I have to carry on doing this I have to get a medal because if it feels this good just running and getting into finals like how amazing will it be to get a medal because it wasn't long after that really and and, and then you kind of got a medal at, uh, at a major championships in Lyon in 2013 um yeah. 100 meters you finished fourth in the 100 meters you missed out by yeah. one of the smallest margins I think any athlete could ever miss out I, by. I really was I was crazy <laughs> and you know it would have been two medals uh, at such a young age but you know to get a bronze in you know those champs was must have been amazing yeah it was especially in the 200 because I've never been good at it like I've never really properly properly trained for it because basically my foot my remaining foot is so sort of delicate I've had to completely drop 200 meters and long jump um because that my foot can't actually run around bends and that kind of amount of impact on it completely messes it up like I've got arthritis and bone stress and I'm missing a metatarsal. So it's not like I can't support myself. So it was, yeah, it was amazing to be able to do that. And like, I kind of, there was a sort of race plan. If you can kind of have a race plan in a 200 meters of kind of running the bend, not quite as fast as possible. And then trying to kind of stay relaxed and be as fast as you possibly can in the exhausting second half of the race, which I did manage to do. Cause I think around the bend, I was like fifth. And then by the end, I was third. And uh, that was that was amazing. And yeah, the 100 metres, it was a shame to lose out on a medal by 0.02 seconds. And then to be, I actually got drug tested after that with the person who got the bronze medal. Oh, and then no. she, she actually managed to, you know, do her wee a lot faster than me. I was there till like midnight because I was dehydrated and I didn't need a wee. Um, so... <laughs> I was like, damn, I can't even wee that fast. And with the drugs test, you generally have to stay until you can actually, you know, yeah. wee. So you actually yeah. have to stay like 12, 1, 2 in the morning. So yeah, as long as it takes, they will be there waiting with you. And it is really annoying when you just keep drinking water. And then when you get back to the hotel or whatever, you've drunk so much water that you can't stop weeing for like hours. <laughs> I've always been curious about those kind of things because yeah, athletes always mention it, but you don't really believe that they take it. Well, they take it that seriously, of course, but they're not that stringent about kind of the way they go about it. Yeah, no, they just, you just, you finish the race, you sort of do your media stuff. You kind of come off the track and then suddenly someone's there with a little badge to show you, Oh, you're getting drug tested. Come with me, please. And then like, if you're under 18, which I was, and you have to like find people to, um, you know, make sure everything's like safeguarded and stuff. So is, it a, is, it a, is it a random drugs test or does everyone get that? Then? It depends. Like sometimes they'll, they'll be like, okay, we're going to test whoever comes first and second, or we're going to test whoever comes third and fifth or whatever. So it is, they don't know who they're going to test, but I guess I don't actually know how it works. I think it's supposed sort of random, but sort of not. I don't know. I just want to chat about um, training as well. Um, mm. Because with sprint training, I guess the stereotype is that it's literally people who can run as fast as possible and on the surface, well, it is. Yeah. But it's, so what, I guess the training is not literally just run and see how fast you can go. There, there are yeah. actually more kind of specific aspects to it. Yeah, so if I did sort of sprint training every day, like I'd probably have to get my other foot amputated. It would be so like messed up. So I, I, do, I would do sprint training on three days a week and then two days a week, it would be recovery session. So for most people, that would be kind of longer distances of like sort of jogging or like not not running as fast as you possibly can. But because of my foot issues, I would do bike sessions instead. So there's less impact um, and then kind of abs, a lot, a lot of abdominal exercises. And then once a week, I'll go and lift in the gym. So it is a, is a mixture of kind of three main different things. And uh, yeah. It's not, it's not all just sprinting about. Because I can imagine the upper body strength you need to be a sprinter is, is pretty high, isn't it, o overall? Yeah, I, yeah. You do, your bench press does get higher than people would expect. So, yeah, you, you do have to be strong everywhere, not just legs. Is there any kind of video training around it as well? Would you watch, like, you know, I don't know, like Usain Bolt's um, world records from Berlin in 2009 or whatever, or, you know, his... his 100 200 meter sprints and then you could analyze where he kind of lifts off and, and the same would go for, for the for the paralympics you've watched athletes with similar amputations to you and see what they do in certain bits of the of, of the track not really like my coach will sometimes show me kind of uh 
sort of the positions that certain athletes are in kind of like the angles and stuff and could be like you know this is what you want but obviously when you're running you can't see yourself you can't do anything about kind of that kind of mental I don't know that mental image can't always be translated into what you're doing with your own body whilst you're running as fast as you possibly can whilst you're also trying not to think about too much because if you think while you're sprinting you're not going to sprint very fast it's got to be pretty like natural um so it is kind of just a case of practicing and I've got very very low sort of awareness of what's going on with like my limbs so if my coach asks me how did that run go I'll be like I have no idea like it was it was fine like I felt like I was leaning forward a bit like that's as much as I can give and he'll be like oh no you were actually leaning back a bit um can you try and lean more forward or you know whatever like I'll be completely wrong half oh, the wow. time. and sometimes so, I'm right so I really rely on outside feedback because I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> so what's the coaching setup like is it just one individual coach you've got or do you have like a nutrition coach uh you know a, a, another coach in another, in another area or um, no, yeah, he does do it all. So yeah, he's, he'll be a sprint coach and like a strength and conditioning. And as for nutrition, he I'll just eat whatever I like. <laughs> so yeah. Okay, kind of going to kind of the years between London 2012 and Rio, you you had yeah. the European champs in Swansea, the world champs in, in Doha, um what were the years between those olympic games like was it kind of you know you're, you're building yourself up to try and get a medal in rio was that kind of the um, idea yeah, definitely. like that was the hope unfortunately it didn't work out like that but um <laughs> i was obviously i was in school so i was doing so after uh 2012 paralympics i started doing my a levels um so that was two years taken up by that and 2014 obviously amazingly happy at 2013's result um because it meant I yeah I was like oh my god I'm a medalist uh 2014 wasn't so great but um it was the European championship so it doesn't have as much weight as a world championships or a Paralympics so I wasn't too mm -hmm. upset about it um that that actually triggered me to find a new prosthetist uh so that's someone who makes your like running blade and day leg um, and that really really helped um because they also helped with orthotics for my actual remaining foot as well so yeah they really care for me they're called proactive prosthetics and they do um a lot of a lot of british paralympic athletes um as well and so 2015 was a bit better although uh it had my heat and final on the same day uh and then in the sort of heat my foot kind of i wouldn't say exploded but it was it was really painful and i I was kind of I was kind of pumped full of painkillers before the final, which they actually changed the time of. So they made it earlier than it would have been. So I had less time to recover. And I came fifth and I was like, OK, this foot really messed me up this time. When you I say got... exploded, do you mean? Well, it, it, it felt just... an explosion of pain. And afterwards, I, after the after the final, I kind of walked off the track, sat down, um, sort of commiserated with everyone. And then went to stand up to go and get my legs flushed, like massaged. And I just fell on the floor and I couldn't walk. And then I was in a boot after that for quite a few weeks because um, of just the bone stress. Uh, and for some reason, like sometimes the heat is really helpful, but it was in Doha and I don't know, the heat possibly created some sort of extra swelling going on. I don't know, I don't exactly know the science, but it, it was horrible. So the kind of the focus for 2016 was make sure your foot doesn't explode and uh, <laughs> be okay um and then yeah so I did after my A-levels I did a foundation course which was just a year of art which was really nice and then I had a gap year in the lead up to 2016 um so that was like the first year of my life where I just had training so that was quite um exciting and I really liked it because I just got to relax all day and uh, then train in the evening and that's that's pretty much what my life is now and it's great nice how how was Doha? Was it quite weird? Was that the first kind of opportunity you had to kind of go out to a big kind of international city to compete in? Um, I guess London, obviously, with the Olympics. Leon, to an extent, it's big, but it's not kind of next level. Was Doha kind of a bit a um, bit surreal, kind of going out there? Or I don't know. Like Leon had way more people in the crowds, and it didn't have that many people. Doha was empty. Um, like the only people in the crowd for us were 
people's parents who had come and other athletes who were, you know, part of your team. So it wasn't, it didn't feel big. It felt like um, a small, like a small kind of race. So there's, there's quite a few races. I've competed in Dubai quite a few times. So I go there in February uh, to compete there. It just felt like that. Um, and so that is always a little bit disheartening, but it's not the end of the world. Cause I think, you know, para athletes are used to not having that big crowds. Um, but I'm one of those weirdos who doesn't really feel nerves that much. So I didn't feel nervous. I've never really felt that nervous before a big event. That's a great trait to have like before yeah. a big event. I mean, it's sort of great, but then like I'll get the opposite. So it'll be the day of the competition. I'll just feel really tired. I won't feel pumped up. Or, or, or like adrenaline fueled or just feel like yeah I want to go to bed guys <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing like at the time as well especially you know doing kind of like a levels foundation courses that the multitasking around kind of the academic side of your life compared to then kind of the stuff on the track you must have kind of at, at first was it difficult but then you kind of got used to it after a while yeah it was it was a pretty I had to really get better at organizing my time and I did get actually asked to leave history very early on a couple of maybe a term in my history teacher said you're not good enough oh, no. uh, please leave. Uh, which was a shame because I had got an A star at GCSE so I can't have been that bad but so yeah then I was only doing three subjects at A level uh, in year 12 and that and most people are doing four at that time so that did free up a lot of time for me to sort of balance things a bit better so it was good that I dropped it um so I'm not too bitter about it but I'm I'm a bit because <laughs> I would quite like to have um you know done a history A level but that's fine uh and yeah I, I'm very uh, good at organizing now I'm like super up on this whole to-do list thing nice nice um just talking about Rio then um we, we had Charlotte Henshaw on last time and she was mentioning about the the documentary um the, the Rise in Phoenix documentary and that she said that a lot of the uh, the athletes who went out to Rio, they didn't know about the severity of kind of the situation about the funding kind of with the Paralympics out in Rio. Were you kind of in tune with that? What was your kind of thoughts of what was happening out there? I guess I was just, I would, I assumed it would go ahead, but there was definitely like, it could not, like it definitely might just get cancelled because all the money's gone um but i yeah i don't think we knew to the exact extent that yeah it almost certainly nearly didn't happen um but then yeah we, you got there and like the food was like quite limited like i remember in london there was food from all over the world and it was amazing um but it was definitely it seemed like it was on a budget um when you got there um, so yeah, it's, and I guess like that whole vibe of like not really feeling like you're wanted or like important is quite a bit of a downer. Um, but yeah, I, I, I sort of try to keep that out of my mind. Because with the crowd situation, I'm guessing similarly to Doha that the crowds at the start, they, they weren't there. Did, but did by the end of the events, the athletics events, the crowds were there. But am I right in saying the sprints are always at the start of the athletics program anyway so maybe in the olympics the sprints are always at the start i don't really know about their scheduling but mine was actually on the last day my heat and final were on the last day of athletics which was basically pretty much the last day of the paralympics until the next day where they had the marathon but they don't obviously they didn't run the marathon in the track um so i had to wait all that time and watching everyone else medal and then I had to yeah do it all on at the last bit and like people would go out and you know visit all the tourist attractions and I couldn't do that because I really have to you know I have to rest and if I do too much walking I'm really messed up for quite a long time so it was it was quite it was quite odd but I'm sort of getting used to that like they do like to put my event right at the end for some reason which I don't love but whatever what was your reaction when you found out that was it like oh no I've got to yeah, I can't see many of the tourist attractions or was it you know I've got more time to prepare I didn't mind about the tourist thing to be honest I'm a rubbish tourist um but I was a bit like oh no heat and final on the same day that's what happened in 2015 and look how that went like I was in a boot for like months afterwards um so but I think luckily I did have a sort of level of confidence that my foot was a lot better uh, and we kind of sorted that out it was just a case of kind of mentally preparing for that um which I obviously didn't manage to do because 
yeah, it was kind of my brain that messed me up in the final. Well, it was, the, it was the world you got the world record in 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 the heats um yeah. so, i mean talk about going all out in the heats i mean you yeah you, you smashed the time there so what was the difference between that and the final was it was it just mental then yeah so i'll i'll go through the whole story i guess so my i i wasn't expecting to get a world record i think my coach was expecting me to get a world record um and then yeah it came and I was like oh my god this is a 10 year old world record like 10 years ago I still had a foot like this this is amazing um and then I went back to the village to kind of relax and eat and get ready for the final and uh I, wa- I was watching the last leg and on it they were doing a little roundup of the day um and I think Adam Hills said to Claire Balding like so you know what's coming up later today and she said she lists the things and then one of the things she said I don't know if this is her exact wording but in my head this is what it was she said and Sophie Camish got a world record in the heat in the 100 meters so that's another guaranteed gold medal for the final and oh, I'm like no. Guarant- nothing's guaranteed um what are you talking about and so then that freaked me out it's like oh my god I'm expected to win now like that has never happened I'd always been going into things as the underdog like and all of a sudden people think I should get the gold medal and uh kind of like messed me up a little bit and so I went into the final not feeling too nervous and then I the gun goes I start running and um I'm like oh my god I'm ahead of everyone that never happens I'm used to kind of trying to catch up to people um I mean it has happened but obviously in my head I was like oh my god this is so weird and like a tiny bit of me thought oh my god have I full started and then like I think I was still winning for the first kind of half-ish of the race. And then kind of 60 metres, 70 metres, I was thinking, oh my God, I might win this. And then like the sort of negative part of my brain kind of kicked in. I was like, of course you're not going to win. And then before I knew it, three people had run past me. And I was like, that's what happens when you think during a race, like I mentioned earlier, you, you have to have a blank mind. Like the only things you can really be concentrating on is like, keeping your hands up or your feet up like that's that's it you you can't be thinking about everyone else so that's coming forth really triggered a um like a kind of fire in me to do well at the world championships the next year in London and luckily that worked out well that's when you won the goal after getting a world record so literally the the same circumstances but same thing I know I was I was so scared like I was saying to people like what if I get a world record again in the heat? Like I'm going to freak out so much because then it will be like a repeat of Rio. And then I get a world record in the heat and I'm like, oh no. (laughs) But like, luckily, like me and my coach had kind of been really concentrating on whenever I did a race to, um, to not worry about the other people. Cause that had, that was obviously what went wrong in Rio. From the reaction from what happened in Rio then. Yeah. So it was like, so kind of in the build up to Rio, we were focusing on my foot and sorting that out. And then the build up to London 2017, it was very much like a brain thing. And I think I've kind of sorted it out now. So luckily I don't think I'm going to mess up that kind of thing. Cause it's like in 2017, the final was, you know, there was a full start and that messes people up. Um, and luckily I was able to kind of overcome that kind of initial trouble. start because it or, or or not was it kind of um, more time to luckily it didn't, the thing about full starts is like I know before the rules changed and you got like cut out straight away um and you got given another chance people would full start on purpose in order to mess other people up so um like oh, really you, you, yeah 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 that was the thing I've heard people talk about how they do it I've never, um, I've never heard of that before. I never thought athlete, athletics at that level would yeah, be never that cynical. Cheeky, <laughs> naughty people. No, obviously not Not many people, um, but I have heard it talked about. Um, and But obviously now you can't do that because you full start, you're gone. Um, but it does, uh, it triggers your adrenaline when that gun goes off. And then you hear it again and you have to go back and start all over again. It's like, okay, my adrenaline's gone. So that's how it sort of feels. But luckily, because I never feel the adrenaline anyway, there's no difference to me. And also, I've just had it in my head, like, that wasn't a very good start you just did. You can improve. You can get better. So you get another chance. You get to do that again. Yeah. Um, 
So I just had that in my head, like take it as a positive. And then I think, in, yeah, I did get a better start the second time around. And uh, I didn't freak out at the fact that I was ahead of people. And then I managed to stay ahead of people and get get a gold medal. Well, you beat the four-time world champion, if I'm correct. In Yeah, so in, Marlou in Van Rijn has always been the person I was chasing. And I'd I'd beaten her in a race once before, like in a like just before the world champs in 2017. Um, and that was at the uh, Manchester City Games, which is where they run a, a race in the middle of the street with only four lanes. Yeah, um, which is a sur- it's a weird, but it's a, it's a surreal, but I think it's an amazing. Yeah, it's super cool. I love competing there. Um, and so I had I had it in my head, like it's possible to beat her. And then I did and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, I was I was so shocked to f- cross that line first, and but mainly relieved. I think you can kind of see on my face on like pictures that it is relief on my face. Because you kind of went full circle, didn't you? You know, starting in London, then going out to Rio and having what happened there, and then going back to London. And yeah, you got aspects of you know London and Rio. Obviously, with Rio, you've got the world record in the heats. With London, it's the location. But then, yeah, it's it's almost like the two combined. Perfect. Yeah. To create, no, to create it was a result. And I can imagine yeah, I the, the crowd was, was there a packed out crowd there as well as well for yeah, that. It felt it felt pretty busy that night. Um I, I, again it was it was pretty late on in the um yeah, pretty late, I think. I or maybe it was in the middle, I can't remember the schedule, but um it felt busy. Um and the crowd were obviously very loud for all the British athletes, which is always nice, but yeah, you, I guess you try not to think about the crowd too much. And luckily they do go quiet when they're kind of, when they start the race. And I know sometimes in, with a lot of big competitions, they do this music thing where they kind of put a heartbeat on in the background just before you're about to race. It's like, that is extra stressful. Thanks for that, girl. <laughs> the thing is, you talk like the mental side of sport. So I can imagine, you know, was it, did you really think about that much before Rio or was kind of Rio the catalyst where the mental side came in because you're talking about you know having all these thoughts and emotions within within the race but it's 100 meters it's it's literally only 12 13 seconds kind of really around that so you know it, it goes very very quickly but then you've still got these thoughts which come into your head during the race yeah I mean yeah up until Rio I'd never really had any issues with anything going on in my head while I was racing it was literally that race that messed that that was the first time that that had happened and that's what kind of messed me up it kind of ruined my sort of whole stride pattern so yeah that was that that was that single moment was the catalyst for okay now you're kind of getting big time you're the world record holder as of eight hours ago um you you know you now have to um think about these sorts of things and think about the pressure that you're under from you know commentators and the public and it's mainly yourself like it is it is a self thing like I obviously I think I put a lot probably did put too much pressure on myself and uh, especially with the comment from Claire Balding. <laughs> well talking about Claire Balding I wanted to kind of go into the media side was the media attention after the world record and especially the gold it kind of elevated to the next level and kind of you know looking at the last leg you know programs like that breaking down stereotypes within the Paralympics as well how how's your kind of relationship with the media been kind of watching it and being interviewed by it um I don't know I've like I never you know I've never sort of received sort of official media training it's just a case of I don't know being being honest about your events that you know what's just happened and kind of trying to be friendly but like I uh I don't I don't really engage with the media that much like I've got a Twitter account but I don't have loads of followers I've got Instagram but I mainly use that for art so um I'm not the most sort of socially media active athlete out there um but it is it can be useful for you know getting things out there and I try I kind of I did once use it when I was basically I was I was phoning up uh the council where I live to be like I need to renew my disability bus pass um like can I would it be I literally just asked on the phone can I come in and just show you that I've got one foot Uh, and he's like oh hang on let me ask my bosses and they um came back to him him and said no you need a letter from your doctor and I just wrote on Twitter like 
can't believe that you know just whacking my leg on the table isn't enough I need a doctor to say that I've got one foot like there's so many images of Google on Google of me with one foot why do I need a doctor like my foot's not grown back like I've already done this doctor's note thing five years ago like feet do not grow back um so and then like loads of people got behind me on it and then um the council just sent me a new card and and just they would realize on Twitter they were like oh no we've upset a Paralympian um so yeah that that was like the probably the best thing that I used it for getting oh that's amazing (laughs) that's great that's great um yeah um just talking about the last leg as well um you know did you watch that from a young age because that I guess well that came from you know yeah London no well I I watched it yeah during the Paralympics it was really fun and funny to watch it like oh my god that's my friend like I know them I just saw them uh I just yeah I just sat next to them in the canteen and you know now they're on the last leg and uh, I was I was like okay my like from yeah the age of 16 I was like okay my aim is to get on the last leg and then in 2017 a load of us athletes who got medals did get to go on the last leg and I was really happy about it and then I was really um really lucky enough to get to use Adam Hills's voice in one of my animations at uni. Um, I basically, I made an animation about the classification changes. So I used to be a T44 and then in 2018, they were like, are oh, you changing now? Cause you're an amputee, you have to be a 64. I was like, that's confusing for people. So then I made a whole animation explaining it using Adam Hills's voice in the background. I really wanted to go into um, classifications because, um, in, it, as I was saying, like as you pointed out to me earlier on, like the research that I did, I got it wrong when you know you were saying a T forty four when you changed the because like at the time I was a T forty four. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> that's that's the pressure I put myself in in uh, prep for you know podcasts. But so, what was the change? Was that from the IPC or was that from kind of people within athletics at a at lower level or? No, it was, it was the IPC and they said, um, so we're going to separate out the categories. So for example, I'll use mine as an example, T44 used to encompass someone with one amputation below the knee, as well as people with like an ankle impairment. So then they were like, okay, we're going to put all the amputees or you, all you 44s are going to be 64s now. And the people with the ankle impairments are going to stay as 44s. So that happened with 42s who used to be people with double above knee amputation or single above knee amputation. So they're now separated out into 61s and 63s and 43s would be uh, Marlou Van Rijn would be an example. She's a double below knee amputee. So now she's a 62. So it's really confusing all those numbers because like very 44 goes to 64 but then 43 doesn't go to 63 it goes to 62 so I can totally understand why people will get confused because even I get confused and I am one of them <laughs> what's what's with the numbers then is 44 63 64 is that just a random number or is that just a, a number thing like they you know it's essentially random so you've got the 30s which would be coordination impairment so for example cerebral palsy you've got um 11 12 13 which are all varying levels of visual impairment and then the 40s used to be amputee and limb impairments but now it's just limb impairments and the amputees are in the 60s they're just because 60 was free because 50s were taken by spinal cord injury so it was just adding another wow So, you know, it was just like, you know, it could have been 70 or 80, but obviously you might as well just go to 60. Um, But yeah, it is. But the thing is, uh, they didn't, although we were separated in terms of numbers and categories, we still all raced together. So it was as if nothing really happened or nothing really changed. It's just more numbers in people's heads. Because I remember watching the the, the, the first Paralympics I watched was in, um, was, in, was in Beijing, but properly it was London. And I remember watching... Channel 4's coverage at the time and they had animations and graphics and about the classifications yeah Um, and I was thinking I understand kind of the reason why they're classified but this is crazy this is ridiculous I mean and I knew quite a bit about sport then more so than a fair few people but not to the level of obviously you know you guys but for the ordinary Joe in the street to understand classifications and athletics is there any way to make it simpler to understand apart from your animations of course yeah well I think 
the Lexi, I think that's what it was called um, in 2012, was useful. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is tricky because obviously in every sport, there's, there's a different sort of amount of numbers. So, you know, you wouldn't get a 62 in cycling, you get something completely different. So it, it's, it is important, I think, for the public to be given a little reminder before each event. Um, but otherwise, it is really down to just sort of, I, I only know because obviously I've been around, you know, I've been doing the Paralympic sport for kind of nine years now, and I've really kind of got it down. But uh, it, it, it's, it's very much a case of if you want to learn it, you do have to sit down and learn it. You, it's not something that kind of, you know, you can get straight away. So yeah, I don't really know the solution. I think it is just a case of the media being like, okay, this is this, this is what's going to happen. This is why these people compete together. Okay, let's go. Well, looking ahead then, um, you know, with Tokyo and, um, you know, coming up and, and COVID, of course, and I'm amazed it's taken, what, 45 minutes for us to mention COVID. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite good that actually, that you know, we haven't in some way. Yeah. Um, so what was kind of the thoughts going through your mind with the training kind of ahead of what would have been this year, of course, but now it's next year. And how's that going um, ahead of that? Yeah, I mean, p- part of me, I'm like, is Tokyo 2021 going to happen? Because, you know, it's unlikely there's going to be a vaccine. Uh, the world's mad, you know, but obviously I'm training as if it's going to happen because that's all I can do. Um, you know, none of us have any control over it. And um, who knows? Like, I I just, it was so crazy when it all kicked off because it, I was in Iceland when it was sort of starting to be a sort of thing in kind of March. And then, uh, and it was just like, oh, nothing, you know, it'll be fine. It'll stay, it'll stay over there. It'll stay, it'll be fine. And then all of a sudden people were coming in, uh, you know, from holiday on in Italy and they had it. And then all of a sudden it's where we are now. So it's, it is, it's really hard to kind of get your head around, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just imagining that it's going to happen and it will be fine. <laughs> so what's the program that you've got kind of training wise ahead of, ahead of Tokyo then? Um, it's, I guess it's just the same as what it would have been otherwise. Um, hopefully I'll be able to get back to the UK in March and be able to compete. Um, and that will give an indication as to how well training has gone. Because obviously you just, you, yeah, competing is one of the most important things. And hopefully I'll be able to get a time that will get me selected. Because um, that's, yeah, that's all I need. Uh but I would also like to do some indoor competitions, maybe in Canada, maybe in the UK, depending on, you know, immigration, border cont- patrol, not patrol, control. Um, but yeah, just just trying to get compete as much as I possibly can, really. And I'm guessing, you know, the, the more you do, obviously, the more practice you're going to get, the better it's the better chance you've got to qualify. In. But, you know, I'm guessing you don't really need a world record time to qualify for the, uh, for, for the, no, you, you, it's not that well, stringent ahead of Tokyo. No, to get um, sort of automatic qualification, you just have to be top three in the world. I say just, you know, it's not... not yeah, only top three in the world, yeah. Yeah, and then I kind of, um, you know, it's not like if you're top four, you know, if you're fourth in the world, you, you could well still get, you probably still get selected. There's enough spaces. Um, so, but yeah, I'm just hoping to be, yeah, aiming for top three in the world and that will just make me, you know, secure in the knowledge that, okay, if Tokyo 2021 does go ahead, I will be there. Whether the crowd is there, who knows, but hopefully I'll be able to go. And it's a stupid question, but the, the aim is the gold, the gold medal, of course, to, to complete the set to an extent, you know, world champs and yeah. and Paralympic gold. Definitely. I mean, it's, you know, third time lucky, although it hasn't gone that lucky this year. Um, but it's, yeah, to um, to get a gold Paralympic medal is definitely my aim. And I, I feel like I won't rest until I've done it. I think it's like even looking ahead beyond that, um, just finishing off, you know, you've got the, the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham in 2022 as well, kind of. Um, I mean, you say that. I don't know if my event will be in it. My event's never been in the Commonwealth Games. Oh, really? So, no, it's it's pretty much um, they they sort of choose a couple of para events and mine's never been there. So it would be cool if mine was there because I think there are a few Commonwealth, there's a fair amount of Commonwealth countries that compete in my category, but most of us are like not Commonwealth countries, I guess, because there's so many like, you know, Dutch athletes and French, you know, they're not in the Commonwealth. So 
then I understand if there's not enough athletes to compete in a certain event, then they wouldn't run it. But it'd be nice if they did. That's that's quite surreal. Obviously, with the Olympics, you never you never get that because you just mm, have, yeah totally with, yeah with, with the Paralympics certain classifications they're in certain major championships but because of the numbers they're not in others as well yeah exactly like you know you wouldn't you it would be mad to say oh oh Olymp- Olympics oh yeah we don't have a 400 meters in the Olympics anymore but for Paralympians that's a very real reality of like oh yeah oh I used to be you know 400 meter world record holder and world champion and Paralympic champion now they've just got rid of it for my category and now I can't run in the 400 meters so it is it is scary and the 200 meters they got rid of a lot of 200 meters fairly recently as well oh really so, um, 200 meters is great to watch what are you doing <laughs> I'm not the sprint events the ones which you think there should be enough people yeah you know, it's not I don't even know I don't, I do not know their logic but um yeah, luckily my hundred meters is still intact, so I get to do that. I was about to say, surely if it's the case that you've got, even if you don't even have heats, if you could, if you can have one final, if you can have yeah. eight people, then that's enough, surely, to have at least a race overall. Yeah. L- look, email them. Let let me know if they get back to you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get in touch with Channel Four and see what we can do. Um, yeah, and finally, just finishing off, um, I always do this with with everyone who's come on. Um, if there's anything else you want to say, um, kind of that you haven't mentioned, or uh, and also um, if you've got a message for anyone who's got a disability similar to you who wants to get into an event like yours as well or another event as well, what would that message be? I guess the message that yeah, any any amputees out there who are thinking, ah. Oh, I was fast before my amputation or, you know, I was born with one foot and I'm still pretty fast. Um, definitely give it a go. And if you're under 21, definitely look at Ready. They're an amazing charity. And if you're not, annoyingly, you do have to try and find funding from charities that cater to older people. But yeah, Ready is so cool. And um, they, yeah, they, if I hadn't got the money from them, I would never have got here. So um, yeah, but there's there's a lot of things that go into kind of, just sort of serendipity and creating the potential for being a Paralympian. And you just got to kind of just look for those opportunities and uh, yeah, definitely, definitely get into it. Well, thanks so much, Sophie, for coming on and uh, I'll give you a little plug on your um, Instagram for all your animations and artwork as well. Um, so <laughs> definitely look at that. Um, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating, comment and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter it's at EssexLadPara and Instagram is at EssexLadParalympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Farewell and we'll see you soon.